chapter 3. We read these words. I am the man, the city that is. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his, God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely again, against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saves my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. She sits among the ruins, slumped slightly uh, slightly to one side. Her elbow rests on the arm of her throne, supporting her chin. Her gaze is turned downward in a resolute frown. Her aspect reveals that she has endured great suffering, a grief too deep for words, perhaps even for tears. Though the crown on her head gives her a regal air, she is despondent. Well, that is how one writer tried to describe a sculpture. It's a sculpture that you can see in the Pennsylvania uh, Academy for Fine Arts. And at the bottom, we find this inscription, quote, Jerusalem in her desolation. In case you don't know the story, let me remind you of it as I did a few moments ago. God had given the city of Jerusalem to the Jews in the promised lands, but they had broken faith with their God. And so God did what he promised he would do. He raised the Babylonian army, 
which raised Jerusalem to the ground so that in 587 BC, Jerusalem lay in ruins. And in the book of Lamentations, the city of Jerusalem is personified not as a female monarch, but as a suffering man. His woes are painted with the darkest colors that could be mixed on any palette. But then in the middle of chapter 3, a spark of hope in a winter of despair. Lamentations 3, 21. But this I, that is I, the city of Jerusalem, call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yes, Jerusalem was under the wrath and the judgment of God. Nevertheless, Jerusalem says, I have hope. Not because of anything in me, but because of everything in God. Well, friends, here we are some 2,600 years later looking out not on a city under the judgment of God but but rather a world under the judgment of God and yet harvest reminds us that we can have hope because God's love God's mercies and God's faithfulness remain yes the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But God hasn't finished with his world yet. Where here we are sustained, we are nourished because of God's steadfast love, God's new morning mercies, and God's faithfulness which remains. I have hope, said Jerusalem. And I have hope, says the world today. I have hope being the message then of uh, the title then of this message. And so to those of you here today who do perhaps feel hopeless in a world full of overturned school buses and van and pedestrian collisions and earthquakes in Morocco and floods in Libya. To those of you who find yourself having to take a a deep breath before you can turn on the news at night or scroll your news feed through squinted eyes, come with me now to Jerusalem. And let's hear Jerusalem tell us why he could have hope. Jerusalem puts his hope under Three pillars that uphold his hope for the future. I have hope, Jerusalem says. Why? Well, because of number one, the love of God. The love of God. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I have hope, Jerusalem says. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Someone said recently that the word love is the most misused or misunderstood word in the English language today. I wasn't able to track down the exact quote, but I remember him saying, uh, we 
say of people we hardly know, oh, I love that guy. And then a few hours later, we say, oh, I love tacos. And then a few hours later on the drive home, we say, oh, I love this song. And the word love, when we come to our Bibles, doesn't floor us like it should because it is misused and misapplied in dozens of situations every day. But when we drill down into the word for love here in the original language, then we come to understand why a city in ruins could have hope in view of this kind of love. The word used for steadfast love here has said it conveys the idea of an immovable love. One that is as enduring as God himself. You know this to be true, don't you? Earthly love ceases. Worldly love grows cold. Human love rises and falls with circumstance, but God's love is like a pillar of gold. It doesn't fail when we fail. It doesn't waver when we waver. It doesn't fluctuate when we fluctuate. It doesn't change when we change. It is permanent. It is always there. It was there before we were born and it will be there after we die. Now, some of you are sat there thinking to yourself, okay then, Hugh, so then explain the Babylonian army to me. Explain the demolished walls. Explain the, the decimated temple. Explain the, the smoke billowing up and rising up to heaven from the Mount Zion. What kind of steadfast love is that? And here's my answer to that question a valuable love. Why do I say that? Well, because a love that will not discipline is cheap. A love that will not do the hard thing for that which is necessary is the love that belongs to a coward. It's empty. It's worth nothing. A few nights ago, Gloria and I, we, we watched this documentary uh, about the artist Matisse, that's how cultured we are, or that's how, that's how boring we are. You make up your mind uh, as to which one it is. And there was this moment in the documentary where one of the art historians had to fight back the tears as she related an episode in his life. One of his daughters was, was suffocating. She couldn't breathe. She was going to die. And so he, he ran out into the street and he began to call for a doctor, uh, but no doctor came. And so he came back in the house and he did the unthinkable. He cut her throat in order for her to be able to breathe through her windpipe. He did what was necessary to save her. What do we call that? Well, we call that love. A love that will do the hard thing for the greatest good. And my friend, maybe you're here today and there is disaster in your life on account of your sin. Maybe when it came to the raising of your children, you sowed laziness. You wouldn't discipline them and now you're reaping the whirlwind. And it's as though your family is as demolished as the city of Jerusalem here in the book of Lamentations. Or maybe a love affair 
with gambling has brought the security around your family crashing and crumbling down. Or maybe that occasional look at pornography has now led to an inescapable addiction and you are in a prison. Someone said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But friends, just as it wasn't over for Jerusalem, it is not over for you. Why? Because God's love remains. It is steadfast. It is immovable. It is that golden pillar with its foundation at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and with its head in the very clouds of the sky. And it's that love that has caused the sun to rise on both the evil and the good that has sent the rain on the just and the unjust because God loves them all. And that's why you have bread on your tables because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It is not all over for you. God feeds you because he loves you. And he loved you yesterday. And he loves you today. And he will love you tomorrow and next year as well. But my hope for you is that you understand that God's love is seen not only in the bread that perishes, but in the living bread that never perishes, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the provision of God that proves his love for us once and for all. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then later Jesus said this, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood true drink. There's the love of God for you. And he's how we can know that God's love is his said love, his steadfast love, both in the bread on our table and in the bread of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen to those of you here today who are languishing under the burden of guilt. Feast on Christ and be relieved of every guilty fear. To those of you who are unconvinced, taste and see for yourself that this bread is good and that it's sweeter than honey. And to those of you who are lukewarm and absolutely nowhere spiritually at all, reignite your love for Christ by feeding on all that God is for you in Him. And to those of you who are dead in transgressions and sins, then feast on this Jesus who died that you might live and who rose that you might rise as well. I have hope, says Jerusalem, because of the love of God. And if Jerusalem knew the love of God back then, then how much more can we know the love of God today in view of our Savior Jesus? And second, the mercies of God. That's how Jerusalem could have hope because of the mercies of God as well. Look at the end of verse 22. His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. I have hope, says Jerusalem, because of the mercies of God. I will not despair because God's mercies never come to an end. I will not accept defeat at the hand of my sin because God's mercies are new every morning. Yes, I have fallen today, but I will rise tomorrow because God's mercies will be waiting for me then and there. And what are we even talking about when we talk about the mercies of God? Well, we are talking, friends, about God's persistent refusal to wash his hands of sinful men and women. That's how someone put it. God's resolve not to treat us as our sins deserve because of his pity and because of his compassion for us. Psalm 7 says that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. And yet it is God's mercy that restrains his hand of judgment year after year, generation after generation, millennia after millennia. And friend, that's why your body has been sustained this past year since our last harvest service because of the mercy of God. God has given you one more year for you to reach repentance before it's too late. God could have just let the, his provision dry up. He could have just broken the supply chain beyond all repair, but instead his new morning mercies have sustained you, met your every need, caused your heart to beat, and caused your lungs to inhale and exhale. And so to those of you here who are not yet Christians, please hear me when I say this, the God who has sustained you, he will not shame you if you come to him in repentance and faith. That's what his sustaining was for. To give you time to reach repentance. We can all look back, can't we, on our, on our childhood. And we can, we can think and remember how hard it was for us to say sorry. Why, why was it hard for us to say sorry as children? It was so hard for us to say sorry back then. Because we didn't know how that person would treat us if we humbled ourselves. We, we feared, we panicked, we were anxious that they would humiliate us, that they would take advantage of our vulnerability, that they would milk our humiliation for all that it was worth. And so we chose to live under the burden of guilt. We would almost prefer that to being humiliated by the person that we wronged. But then when we could bear it no longer, we went to our parents. We went to that friend who we never really wanted to insult and offend. And we said we were sorry. And tears came to our eyes and flowed down our cheeks when we watched them consider the past as the past and forgive us just like that in a moment. That, that relief that they didn't humiliate us. They didn't reject us. They didn't milk our apology for all it was worth. And as grown-ups, we can just be like that with God, can't we? we? We run and we hide and we procrastinate and we put off coming to Him because we're so afraid of what God is going to do and what God is going to say if we come to Him 
in simple repentance and faith. But listen, friend, the God who has sustained you will not shame you if you come to him in repentance. Because again, that's why he sustained you. That according to his mercies, even in the Lord Jesus Christ, he would count the past as the past and embrace you like that father of the prodigal son. Hushing his I'm sorry speech, throwing the best robe around his shoulders, putting the best ring on his finger and killing the fattened calf in joy that this son has come home. I was reminded this past week of the story of Joseph. You remember his brothers, they'd, they'd sold him into slavery. They'd trafficked him. They'd pretended and hoped that he was dead. But then through one quirk of providence after another, they found them, themselves face down before him. And, he, and, he, and, he, and Joseph revealed his identity to him. They didn't recognize him, but Joseph told them who he was. And then sometimes, sometime later, what did they do? They doubted his mercy. And they, they huddled in a little huddle for a team talk and they said to each other, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we had done to him even after his mercy had been published to them. But all of that fear was groundless. Why? Because his pity and his compassion had grown for his starving brothers and his family. And so it is with us and God. Go to him then, friend. Put it off not one hour longer, but today. And take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. And he will do it. Why? Because his mercy will be there for you. Ready to receive you ready to push back his judgment and to do what his provision was intended to do for you. But to you believers, can I say this? Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And I want to ask us the question, could it be that one of the reasons that unbelievers procrastinate and fear and put off coming to God, afraid of his judgment, of them, Could it be that the reason they do that is because God's people have so often judged them? And they, they think to themselves, if God's people have judged me in the way that they have, then how much more God himself? God is going to treat me just as, as his people have. But friends, what have we to do with judging outsiders? Nothing to do Nothing at all. If God sustained them according to his mercies, then how dare we wash our hands of them and write them off forever? I think I've told you this story before about that youth pastor who'd started to reach some of the kids in his town with no church background. And he got alongside them. He started to share the gospel with them. And they started to come to church and they came to the services. And at the end of one of the services, this youth pastor looked around and saw one of the older members 
of the church. That's no hard on you, all the members of this church. But one of the members of the church speaking to him in quite an animated, passionate way. And so he thought to himself, oh, amazing. Look, there he is. He's sharing the gospel with him. Let's pray that he, he really gets it. So he, he, he came a bit closer to this conversation to hear what was, was going on. And as he approached and began to be able to hear the conversation, he heard this church member say to this newcomer, so you see, you can't wear a hat inside. And he thought to himself, look, we've got 8 billion years to talk about whether we can wear a hat inside when we all get to heaven. Let's make sure this young person gets through those gates before we lecture him on his clothing in church. Friends, that is not the way we learned Christ. We learned Christ according to God's steadfast love and mercy. How dare we judge outsiders and show anything other to them than what God has shown to us. I have hope, says Jerusalem, because of number one, the love of God. Number two, the mercy of God. And thirdly and lastly, the faithfulness of God as well. Look at that at verse 23, end of verse 23. Great is your faithfulness. I have hope says Jerusalem, because your faithfulness, O God, is great. I have been unfaithful, but you have been faithful. We have not been the people we promised to be, but you have been the God that you have promised to be. And we have not done all that we said we would do, but Lord, you have done all that you said you would do, Great is your faithfulness. And the reality is that this is both frightening and comforting. It's very, very frightening because God's great faithfulness tells us he'll be faithful to do everything he said he will do, even the things that we don't like very much. I just finished reading the book of Leviticus in my quiet times recently. And in chapter 26, God promises blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. And he promises blessing like this. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and my soul, uh, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But then in a few verses later, when he promises curse for disobedience, he says, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be laid waste. And here in Lamentations 3, that's exactly what God had been faithful to do. He had scattered the people among the nations. It's why Lamentations Opens in chapter 1 verse 1. How lonely lonely sits the city that was full of people. And you see God is not like one of those parents who threatens discipline but never follows through. He's faithful to his word. And this is also comforting. Because it means that God will be faithful to restore those who repent and who return to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 God says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, 
among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And God was faithful to do just that. The Persians were raised up, the Babylonians were put down, and the Jews went home in 538 BC. And harvest is a shining example of God's great faithfulness to us because remember, God spoke to Noah when he said, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And here we are all these years later on the receiving end of God's great faithfulness. Well, friends, as new covenant believers, we can be encouraged today, can't we, that God doesn't relate to us on the basis of our obedience or on the basis of our faithfulness to God, but instead Christ's obedience and Christ's uh, faithfulness to God. He bore our sin that we might bear his righteousness. And if you're here today and you're a believer, let me bring this all to a close by saying this. Hope in the heart springs from truth in the mind. Maybe you're here today and all this talk about the steadfast love of God and the new morning mercies and the great faithfulness, it just doesn't feel real to you. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord and so on and so forth. Hope in the heart springs from love, uh, from, from truth in the mind. So what do you have to do then, friend, to get this truth in your mind? Maybe you have to write down the ways in which God has been loving to you and merciful to you and faithful to you so that you don't forget it. Uh, maybe you need to tell a, a close friend, let me tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. Maybe you even need to put his love and his mercy and his faithfulness to, to a melody and, and sing it before the Lord to rejoice in his love, mercy and faithfulness in your life. This is countercultural. We live at a time, don't we, when we only value feelings that are spontaneous. And we want emotions that bypass the brain. But hope in the heart springs from truth in the mind. And to those of you who are unbelievers, let me say this. Today, I, befo- I put before you blessing and curse, life and and death. If you will say, I will not have this man to reign over us, then God will be faithful to do in your life all that he has promised to do to judge you. But if you will come to God through Christ, then his steadfast love 
and his new morning mercies and his faithfulness will be established in your life. And Jesus will set up his government within you and he will reign and his government will have no end until you're brought before him face to face. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? The only question today is, friend, are you willing? If you're willing, the Lord Jesus Christ will gather you under the wings of his love and mercy and faithfulness and he will save you and he will restore you and he will keep you until you see him face to face. Well, may God bless you in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll come to sing together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for this great love and for these new morning mercies and for, these, and for this great faithfulness. We see it in the food we enjoy, but Lord, we thank you that we see it too in the bread of heaven. And Lord, we do pray that you would restore our faith and confidence in him and that, Lord, you would lead us to love and to trust him more as we see your covenant faithfulness to us in him. And Lord, all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.